I'm thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Benjamin Bickman today on episode number 27 of the Sleep Whisperer podcast and we're talking about insulin resistance and sleep. Dr. Bickman is a world-renowned metabolic research scientist. He's a popular speaker on human metabolism and nutrition. Backed by years of research, Dr. Bickman's mission is to help the world appreciate the prevalence and relevance of insulin resistance. Dr. Bickman's book, Why We Get Sick, offers a thought-provoking yet real solution to insulin resistance and how to reverse pre-diabetes, improve brain function, shed fat and prevent diabetes and I'm going to add to help you improve your sleep. Dr. Bickman says science shows that by prioritizing protein and healthy dietary fats and limiting carbohydrates, human health and metabolism thrive and insulin resistance is resolved. I'm extremely thrilled and humbled to have Dr. Bickman today on the show. I hope you enjoy the show today because we talk a lot about the connection between obesity, insulin resistance, sleep and extremely insightful advice from Dr. Bickman on potential connections that impact sleep or how sleep impacts insulin resistance. And just to read another 5 star review which always makes me thrilled from Bishal, amazing podcast on improving sleep behavior. These podcasts are so informative and Deepa touches upon the nitty gritties of sleep function which we have always ignored and considered not so important. This has helped me to give a deep thought and improve my health over a period of time by implementing few simple suggestions by improving my sleep pattern. I recommend all to hear this podcast posted so far and enjoy the benefit. Thank you Deepa for your deep insights during this pandemic time. Thank you Vishal for leaving your 5 star review. Back to the show, let's talk insulin resistance. Welcome to the Sleep Whisperer podcast. I'm your host Deepa. Join me and my many expert guests and medical professionals from the cutting-edge science of functional medicine of the West and ancient wisdom of the East. Learn all about how to discover your root causes of poor sleep and understand the proper tools and techniques to end your confusion and begin getting a good night's sleep. It's time to regain hope and begin your sleep journey with the Sleep Whisperer podcast. Dr. Bickman, it's such a pleasure to have you today on the Sleep Whisperer podcast and I'm thrilled that we were actually able to schedule this. And uh, this is a very important topic and I also want to actually begin by saying that recently uh, I saw a few people sharing a research paper on how obesity has no significant role to play in the development of metabolic disorders and that actually got me a little concerned because uh, it was almost as if it was telling people that, hey, it's all right to stay obese. It's all right to not try and shift that. And then, of course, I listened to your episode with my dear friend, Rupurohit, who is the host of the Broken Brain podcast. And there were so many things that uh, you just enlightened right there for me. And insulin resistance is also a topic that's uh, I think being underplayed sometimes and then sometimes mm -hmm. not really defined very clearly because I don't think people actually understand what exactly is insulin resistance. And it's fascinating that you've actually gone so deep into this very subject and for such a long time. So before we head into our conversation, which is insulin resistance and sleep, I'd love to know a little background scene about Dr. Benjamin Bickman and how did you actually 
uh, end up in this specific area where you've written a book specializing on insulin resistance. So I'd like to know the background story for me. Yes, yes. Thank you, of course, again, for the invitation to speak with you. This is going to be a, a wonderful conversation. My background started actually in uh, studying in muscle physiology. I was much more interested at, when I first began my graduate um, studies in the muscle. And then within just a couple of years, I had started to lose interest in the muscle and became more interested in fat cells. And that happened after I had stumbled across one paper. I wasn't intending to find this topic, but I found this paper that had been published a few years previously in the late 90s. And they detailed how fat cells secreted pro-inflammatory cytokines or, or hormones. And these would promote inflammation in the body and that would increase insulin resistance which was the foundational problem with type two diabetes. So there had long been this observation that obesity and type two diabetes go together. Um, in fact, to such a degree that many lump them together and just call it diabetes. This idea that the fat cells are promoting inflammation and that it is now inflammation induced insulin resistance and diabetes that connected it. These, these sort of sick fat cells or inflamed fat cells that to me was fascinating because not only did it explain the connection between obesity and diabetes, something everyone is interested in to some degree, but it also was re uh, a revelation to me to learn that fat cells secreted hormones. I didn't know that. That had already actually been studied in different areas with, with hormones like leptin, but I'd not seen any of that. Uh, this was a revelation that fat cells also are part of the endocrine system. Of course, nowadays we know that pretty much every tissue is, but I didn't know that at the time. So that was the beginning of my shift away from muscle cells and more deliberately focusing on the fat cells. And I continued that focus on insulin resistance throughout my entire graduate and, and career and postdoctoral fellowship, even now to this day. But at the time, as a graduate student and a fellow, I, on, I continue to only know or be aware that insulin resistance is related to type 2 diabetes. I, I did not know that insulin resistance was foundational to virtually every chronic disease. That was something I started to learn more and more as I became a professor and I was teaching classes to undergraduates. I was interested in just seeing how relevant insulin resistance was as I was teaching a class about uh, pathophysiology or the sick body. Uh, but so that's the background. And then um, the, the impetus for the book that you mentioned really came from when I started teaching my class. I just kept, when I would teach a lecture about hypertension, I thought to myself, how might insulin resistance be relevant to this? And I come to find out there is decades of research. And then when I'm teaching about Alzheimer's disease, once again, there's a, a wealth of research or infertility and more and more. Uh, and and I, I felt this is so relevant. It's so important for people to understand that insulin resistance is related to every chronic disease. That's what really ultimately pushed me to want to share what I know in the form of a book. Wonderful. And in fact, um, Ben, that uh, another common thing that I hear a lot in India is uh, something like uh, we don't have diabetes, so we don't have to worry about sugar. Uh, and uh, I'm crazy. always exactly. And uh, usually, when I talk about how every sugar is sugar and how below your neck your body doesn't really differentiate whether it's jaggery, honey, refined sugar, your body's going to still metabolize sugar as sugar. And usually, people look at me like you're making a big deal about sugar. Uh, whereas um, the understanding that sugar plays such a big role in every disease out there. Uh, and that's what I'd like us to go a little deeper into, especially since you've gone into that within your book. So can we first speak a little bit more about what is the role of fat cells and 
what mm-hmm. do they actually do in the body? And as I mentioned at the start, I was so disturbed by this research that was shared that obesity has no role to play in the development of metabolic disorders. So is it, do, can obesity be actually ignored or is it something, is, is it really related to the development of other conditions? Is there a concern there and is it justified? Yes, there is. I, I am wondering how someone would feel justified in saying that obesity is not related because uh, that is so, it is so false. That is simply not true. Now, having said that very, uh, very clearly, let me back up and, and, and speculate why someone might say that, why someone might say obesity is not re- relevant to insulin resistance. It could be uh, that they are pointing a finger at this extremely small group of people Mm. that are able to indeed become very obese, um, morbidly obese, and maintain a relatively normal metabolic profile. In other words, they appear to not be insulin resistant. Their blood pressure stays pretty normal. Their blood lipids stay pretty normal. That can happen. It is not common but it can happen. Um, and that is a case, it is a perfect example of what have, how pivotal our fat cells are in causing insulin resistance as we know it. So very briefly, if you have two people that are getting fat, and in fact, let's pick two different ethnicities because it can be reflected this way. Let's say we have someone of, of European, Northern European ethnicity, and we have like Caucasian, or we have someone of Indian ethnicity and they both, these two men, and every year they're gaining 10 pounds. They're gaining 10 pounds. Typically the Indian man will have gained these, let's say 50 pounds a few, over a few years and the Caucasians gained the same amount, this man, 50 pounds. The Indian ethnicity will tend to start suffering from that fatness earlier than the Caucasian man. And so this, and, and, and so, not all, of course, not all Caucasian men, but Caucasians tend to be an ethnicity that can get fat in, in, a, in a healthier way. If I, mean, I know that sounds like a paradox, but what is happening in each of them is that their fat cells are growing differently. In the Indian, or less in the Caucasian man, his fat cells may be growing through a process called hyperplasia. Now, again, this is not so common, but this is when his fat cells start to get a little big. And then before they get too big, they recruit new fat cells to come into the fat tissue. And then these fat cells can start to carry some of that fat. They can carry some of that burden. And so none of the fat cells Mm. ever get too big. None of the fat cells ever get too big and they can continue to, the fat tissue can continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger. In contrast, let's say on the Indian man, his fat tissue is starting to grow, but the number of fat cells doesn't change. Each individual fat cell <clears throat> starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And in fact, it gets to a point where they are too big. And essentially, the fat cell that gets too big, and that's a process called hypertrophy, the hypertrophic fat cell essentially starts to tell insulin, the hormone insulin, I am too full. Um, and that matters. That matters because insulin tells fat cells to store energy and to not share the energy. In other words, it, it activates the storage of fat and it inhibits the breakdown of fat. Now, in the hypertrophic fat cell, the fat cell is too big and it's telling insulin, I cannot listen to you anymore. And thus it starts to become insulin resistant. Insulin is telling it to take in fat and it's trying to tell it to not break down its fat, but the hypertrophic fat cell has stopped listening. It can, it will still be taking in some fat, but now it starts leaking fat when it shouldn't. And so it's leaking free fatty acids into the bloodstream. Mm. At the same time, at the same time, this really, really big fat cell starts to release pro-inflammatory proteins called cytokines. And this might be an effort for the fat cell to just try to promote new blood cell formation. 
to try to increase more capillaries because one of the problems with the really big fat cell is that it gets too far from capillaries. It gets too far from blood. And so by releasing pro-inflammatory proteins, it may be attempting to increase the blood flow through the fat tissue to help itself survive. So both of these things, releasing free fatty acids and releasing pro-inflammatory cytokines are efforts of the hypertrophic fat cell to survive. But the consequence is born by the other tissues in the body because when those other tissues are seeing the free fatty acids and the pro-inflammatory cytokines from the fat cell, now they start to become insulin resistant. So they're the innocent bystanders. Um, and, and then back to the you know Caucasian man, theoretically, he's getting fat through what, a process called hyperplasia, not hypertrophy, but hyperplasia. And that again, the hyperplasia is when we start to have new cells. Uh, and this can happen in a small subset of population and, you know, based on what we understand, Caucasians may tend to have that more than other ethnicities. And because those fat cells never get too big, they can stay very insulin sensitive. And this person thus stays insulin sensitive, paradoxically, while getting fatter and fatter and fatter. Because there's almost, it's like there's always room at the hotel. There's, there's always vacancy. It can always store more and more fat. And so the person can become morbidly obese because the fat cells never become insulin resistant. When the fat cells become insulin resistant, it's basically the limit of that person's fat gaining. They're not going to get much fatter than that. Now, the truth of this mechanism, different, the differentiation between hyperplastic fat cells being insulin sensitive and hypertrophic fat cells being insulin resistant is evidenced in one of the most effective types of medication that we will give to insulin resistant type two diabetics. We will give them a drug of a, of a family of drugs called thiazolidine dions. And thiazolidine dions will activate <clears throat> a, a pathways or, or metabolic processes, or I should say genes. It will turn on genes within the hypertrophic fat cell to push them into becoming hyperplastic fat cells and it works, this person will start to become very insulin sensitive very quickly. But the problem is by making the fat cells insulin sensitive now, again, by allowing more and more fat cells to grow, we end up becoming fatter. So it's basically like we took the hypertrophic fat growth and now turned it to hyperplastic fat growth. Yes, that does solve the insulin resistance, but it solves it by allowing the fat cells to store more and more and more fat and never become insulin resistant. So it's, a, it's not a very good trade-off. And indeed, that's one of the reasons type 2 diabetics uh, will stop taking those medications because they get so fat so quickly. So maybe there's some truth, <clears throat> a small amount of truth, where someone says obesity is not related to insulin resistance, maybe there are maybe they're thinking of that you know five percent of the population. Although I suspect it would be even less than that in India. In general, that statement is not true. Insulin resistance is intimately related to the growth, the size of our fat cells, and if our fat cells are getting too big, which would be obesity then we have insulin resistance. Now, one last thought on this. Just recently, a paper was published just I think about two weeks ago that uh, elaborated again, although this has been known for years, this, this phenotype, this body type where it's thin on the outside, they say, and fat on the inside, T uh, toffee, mm. T-O-F-I, thin on the outside, fat on the inside. And these are people who look lean, they have a normal, body weight relative to their height or what's called a body mass index. And yet they have more fat than someone else does than, 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 than they should. And this is either, this is actually typically more visceral fat, more fat within the core of the body. So these are people that look lean, but have more fat than they should for their body type. That is also a phenomenon that can affect people of Indian ethnicity. So that would be an instance where someone would say, well, obesity doesn't have to be related to insulin resistance because look at these people, they're not obese and they have insulin resistance. Well, they're not obese based on conventional classifications of obesity where we have a really high body weight, but they could be relatively obese based on what their body should be. 
There are some people who just naturally should be lean. And we do see this in Indian ethnicity, but not as much as we see in Chinese ethnicity. In, in Chinese or, or kind of Asian ethnicity, not Asian Indian, of course, um, it, it's much more prominent where that's a very um, slight or lean frame and it's very sensitive to fat gains. As that body starts storing more and more fat, you just store a little more fat than you should and you immediately start to have metabolic problems. And this was very obvious when I was doing my postdoctoral fellowship in Singapore, it was a beautiful landscape to study metabolic disorders across ethnicities. Because of course we have the Chinese Singaporeans, we have the Malaysians, we have kind of the indigenous people, we have Indians, uh, Asian Indians, and then we have Caucasian Europeans. And to see the differences of, of metabolic problems across these ethnicities uh, is striking. Where the other ethnicities don't have to be very overweight, especially Chinese and Malaysian and, and similarly Asian Indian to start suffering the consequences. So a long answer to your question, and I'll just answer it again, Obesity is exquisitely related to insulin resistance and anyone who's stating otherwise is either uninformed or, or worse, disingenuous. They know the truth and they just don't want to admit it. Yeah, it's quite scary, Ben. And in fact, as you know, India is very, very high in metabolic disorders like diabetes. And when you spoke about ethnicity, I'm interested to know what actually uh, predisposes one ethnicity towards developing something like insulin resistance over another ethnicity? And is that related to cultural diets or is it uh, that's the background that's differentiating this ethnicity or is it something more? Yeah, what a great question. I'm so glad you're asking that. Um, and I'm happy to share my thoughts on it. So I think that there is, it's a combination where there will be a genetic predisposition towards um, more towards hypertrophy. So a lower inclination to making new fat cells. And this can happen. There are genes that control those processes of hyperplastic fat growth or hypertrophic fat growth, um, but also diet is undoubtedly related. And I do think the the tendency in the Indian culture to avoid animal products is possibly part of the problem. And, and let me elaborate because I know this, I, I don't, I'd hate to offend anyone. So if anyone is offended, uh, I, I say everything out of ignorance here, if it's offensive. Um, because I know that there are, there will be a very much a religious component to this. And so I, I talk about this very respectfully. Um, unfortunately, by, by avoiding animal products in, in cooking, then the person is forced to rely on non-animal fats in their cooking. So the person may not be using ghee, you know, for example, although I don't know to what degree how strict people are, of course, in this regard. Ghee is, is actually a fat that we use a lot, except for the small population, which is now uh, moving towards a completely plant-based diet. But ghee is very much a rich part of the Indian tradition. Good, good, good. So ghee is a good one. Um, those who go 100% away, kind of vegan, then they are forced to rely on these seed oils. They'll, they'll, they'll call them vegetable oils, but they're not from vegetables. They're from the seeds of, of well, pl some plants. And these are things like soybean oil, um, cotton seed oil, or uh, rapeseed oil, and others that I, I can't cite off the top of my head. Those oils will be metabolized into molecules that force the fat cell to grow through hypertrophy. Um, and then when we combine those seed oils with a diet that is very high in refined carbohydrates, which is from what I understand, I've only been to India once, um, but there is a lot of refined carbohydrates in Indian food, when, which is of course spiking insulin and insulin stimulates fat cells to grow. And so if you combine insulin spiking, which is stimulating fat cell growth, and you combine it with a high intake of seed oils, in cooking, which will force the fat cells to only grow through hypertrophy, not through hyperplasia, then that insulin stimulated growth combined with the seed oil is really um, accelerating the hypertrophic fat cell growth. 
increasing the tendency towards insulin resistance. And I, I cannot help but think this is very much part of the reason why, to my knowledge, India has more people with type two diabetes than any other country on the earth. And I know the population is high there, of course, but nevertheless, that's a striking statistic. No one wants to be in number one position, but I believe India is. And I very much yes. think it's a combination of a high refined starch consumption, lots of sugars, lots of refined carbohydrates with high seed oil consumption. Yes, this is why I wanted to speak with you, Ben, because as I mentioned the beginning that while um, there are there are people who are more plant-based, but who at least try and make a conscious effort to eat more fiber and fats versus um, um, refined starch and sugar. But there's such misinformation regarding sugars, as I mentioned in the beginning, that if it's jaggery and honey, and uh, people actually feel validated that they've replaced their refined sugar. They're making yeah. more sweets with jaggery and honey. And ultimately, as I say, below the neck, your body really doesn't know the difference. Yes, there might be certain components which are possibly a little healthier in the other mm -hmm. sugars, but then your body is going to feel the impact of the sugar itself. And another common thing that I hear from including my mother is that I don't have diabetes, so I don't need to worry about sugar and nothing could be further from the truth because I think anyone who has even just fluctuating blood sugar during the day, it's going to impact your mood and your sleep since we are discussing discussing sleep today and uh, how can somebody actually know that they are insulin resistant so what are the labs or how how can somebody actually uh, be sure of it mm -hmm. I think it is there's something so profound in in what your mom your mother would say about this where she's saying I don't have to worry about sugar because I don't have type 2 diabetes uh, a, a sort a, an alternative way of looking at that is saying worry about sugar so that you never have type 2 diabetes. So if, you, if you've been lucky enough to avoid this so far, and, and your mother probably has, um, then what a blessing. That is so fortunate. Well, then be careful now, mommy. Deepa's mommy, be careful now so that you never have those problems as we age. Because as the older we get, naturally, the more insulin resistant we become. And so we seem to be a little bulletproof um, when we're younger, of course, and even though your mom uh, is, is older, even still, this is something that comes around for most people. Now, I forgot your question. I got distracted. How can somebody actually know that they're insulin resistant? Mm, because it's right. being spoken about so loosely that I'd like to actually break it down into are there labs that somebody should look at and what's actually a... Uh, the rule of thumb to know if you are insulin resistant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of their, there are some clinical values and then there are just some eye tests that someone can do. So if someone let's like, for example, on the skin, there are some relevant markers. If someone has um, these little things called skin tags, they're basically little like little pillars, little columns of skin sticking up. This isn't like a mole or something that is rounded like a hill. These are teeny little things that just kind of go straight up. Yeah. And they will have they will have them around their neck and they yes. can have them around their armpits. If someone has lots of skin tags, now just a few, like two or three, that's nothing. Um, but if someone has several, um, then that is a very strong sign of insulin resistance. And then second, at those same areas around the neck, especially the back or around the armpits or anywhere where the skin is folding and rubbing, the person can have something called acanthosis nigricans, which is when the skin is getting darker and rougher. Mm. Now, uh, this, can, this happens on any ethnicity. Now, of course, the darker the complexion, if we have someone of African ethnicity, very dark, dark skin, then it might be harder to see the pigmentation difference, but you can still very much see the rougher skin and you can feel how rough it is just at those sections. That is also, so that's a second sign. In fact, Ben, you're so, right, 
In fact, you're so right about that because my son, my son is 10 years old and he has a condition called uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia where his mm -hmm. adrenal gland doesn't produce cortisol and aldosterone. And I remember at one point his endocrinologist looked at the, he had been swimming for a while and his skin color at the neck had turned dark and she uh, had um, tests done because she was concerned that he had also developed type 2 diabetes. Mm. So I do recall that. You're so right. Yeah, that is so interesting. And in, in, in fact, that is a credit to the endocrinologist for paying attention to that. Those are some of the strong signs uh, of insulin resistance. Now, if we move away from <clears throat> what we see with the eyes into what we see in the clinic, one of the best ways is to just measure insulin. If someone can get their insulin, their fasting insulin measured, that is going to be a very good indicator of where they are. And generally, not always, generally, and I say generally because there can be some diurnal rhythms and you might've catched it at a high point, but if, if someone gets their insulin measured and it's around six microunits, uh, although in India, it's going to be picomoles, and I think that's probably around 38 or so picomoles. I'm not sure. Someone could look on. No, India also we check. Uh, no, Ben, in India also we get markers. As usually I see when I test for my clients, I get them at 7, 7.5. Oh, so okay. It's yep. Uh, yep. similar. Good. Okay, good. So similar to the U.S. So if it's around six microunits, that's a good that's a good um, level. If it's getting into the teens and high teens, that is a warning. It's probably not good. It's probably a problem. And I say probably because maybe we caught the person at their highest. And so we'd want to test again another day to see, or we would look at a different value that I'll mention in a moment. But then if it's getting into the twenties and beyond, that's a very good sign. Well, it's a bad sign that they have insulin resistance. It's a very reliable indicator that there is a problem. Now, I'd mention the other indicator, uh, and that is the, you can look at the person's blood lipids, and you can look at two blood lipids, uh, it, they're triglycerides divided by HDL cholesterol. If triglycerides divided by HDL cholesterol equals a number that is 1.5 or less, that's a good sign, again, that they, that they are insulin sensitive. And so the person who maybe they were tested and their insulin was 10 or into the teens, and you would say, well, that might be bad. If you also then couple that by looking at the triglyceride HDL ratio, and that's a very good number, you know, maybe it's less than one, then I would say it's no problem. We just found them at a high point. And if we tested again another day, their insulin would be very likely to be, be, be very good. But if they have insulin in the 10 to teens, and their triglyceride to HDL ratio is two or so, you know, it's higher than 1.5, that's, that's not good. That means they are insulin resistant. And then we, you know, start acting accordingly. But also, if someone is a little overweight and they have high blood pressure, that's also very, very strong evidence that they're insulin resistant. Most instances of hypertension are caused by uh, insulin resistance. Although sleep can very much change blood pressure. And, and I say that as someone with experience, I'm insulin sensitive, thank heavens, but I sleep, my, depending on my night with my children um, and how many times I wake up with my little kids, then I can, I will measure my blood pressure on here in my, in my lab and I will see my blood pressure is high one day and another day it'll be perfectly normal. And it is all because of my sleep, not to change the topic. Um, too quickly. But yes, so hypertension is also very often caused by insulin resistance as well. So those are some easy ways someone can get an idea of where they are on the spectrum of insulin resistant to insulin sensitive. Perfect. So Ben, we did, you did mention your sleep, but I want to go a little bit deeper into how can insulin resistance actually impacts quality of sleep? Because I did come across a few studies which pointed towards that. I know that poor sleep contributes to insulin resistance, but is there a way that uh, insulin resistance can impact sleep? Is it because of poor blood sugar management during sleep? Um, yes, that you just mentioned a very, very um, good point. 
yes, that would that could be part of it. Now, I'll I'll, I'll preface all of this by saying I'm going to speculate a bit here, because I don't know too much evidence that confirms um, sort of that relationship, that direction of insulin resistance causing sleep. I'm more familiar causing sleep disorders. I'm familiar with the opposite, which you've mentioned a moment ago. So yeah, if someone is insulin resistant and their glucose levels are poorly controlled because of it, because of course, one of insulin's main actions is to control glucose. And the more the body is resistant to insulin and the higher the glucose will tend to be, or they eat a meal, maybe it's a starchy, sugary snack before bed, they can have their glucose levels elevated all night. And in fact, I saw this, I, you can't see it because of my shirt. I wear a continuous glucose monitor just because I am able to get these from a consulting arrangement that I have. And I, the other, about two weeks ago, I, we had, we had cereal in the house, you know, just kind of box cereal. And we never, we never buy box cereal um, because I don't like giving it to my children. We make breakfast for the kids every morning um, in, in the, in the kitchen. And, but, but we were indulging the kids had a little holiday and I thought it'll be fun. Let's buy some cereal and the kids will love it. And they, of course they do. The problem with the cereal is daddy loves it too much as well. <laughs> this is something that it tempts me. If we have cereal in the house every evening, I put the children to bed. I, we clean up the house with my wife and I, and then I sit down to relax, to read or to watch a, a TV show. And the cereal box starts calling for me. It's saying, Ben, come eat me. And so two, two weeks ago, I went and had two big bowls of cereal. And I finished the first bowl of cereal. And I said, oh, I am, I am full. I do not need any more. But maybe I need one more bowl. And so I ate another bowl. And then I was uncomfortably full. My glucose stayed above 110 um, for even higher at first. But it stayed elevated for 18 straight hours. Wow. I slept terribly and I track my sleep every night. I wear a sleep ring uh, in order to look at my sleep cycles and my sleep time. And it was terrible. My heart rate was elevated. My blood, my body temperature was elevated. And I actually just wrote a blog post about this on a website called Levels Health. Um, anyone could go look. It just, I was so fascinated by this phenomenon of glucose altering body temperature and then especially in the context of sleep. So to sum that up, if someone is insulin resistant, or even if they're not, but if they're insulin resistant, it will make this more likely to happen, but they go to bed with elevated glucose, they will absolutely sleep worse. That will result in a higher body temperature, a higher heart rate, and, and, and then you will sleep worse because of it. I, that is very well established. So that's one obvious connection. Let me make a less obvious connection as well. When someone is insulin resistant, as we elaborated on just a little bit ago, they often will have more body fat than they should. They'll have more fat than they should. One of the unexpected places where the body can start to store fat, well, if I, let me back up briefly. As fat cells start to get full, the body will start to store fat in other places. This is a phenomenon referred to as ectopic fat deposition. So the body's starting to store more fat in the muscles or in the liver or in the bones or in the tongue. The tongue actually is a place that can start to store more fat. And as the tongue starts to store more fat, it gets bigger and that can result in uh, an obstructive sleep disorder where the person's mm. lying back and that bigger, fatter tongue is now dropping back and blocking the airway. And that is why I believe as someone starts to improve their insulin resistance and starts to lose a little weight, they start to shrink their tongue. Now, this is some speculation. We do know the tongue can store fat. We know that for certain. What I'm speculating is that part of the sleep improvement as someone becomes more insulin sensitive is that they are losing fat from the tongue. Um, and this has been confirmed that the tongue does store fat. They use ultrasounds to measure the fat in the tongue, but the tongue will start to physically shrink, allowing the airway to stay more open when the person's lying down and thus sleep better. So that was, that's a bit of an unexpected one. So that might be two areas and probably many more, including inflammation and maybe inflaming the airway, whereby insulin resistance could be contributing to sleep disorders. 
No, Ben, I feel like Harry Potter who's discovered some treasure because this is very, very interesting. And I just want to go a little bit more into that because you mentioned how uh, the elevated glucose impacted body temperature. So what do you think is the, why does the body temperature actually change? So I do know that sleep gets impacted the moment core body temperature raises up and you need a lower core body temperature to actually fall asleep and also stay asleep. But uh, what is the exact connection between elevated sugar and raised body temperature? Mm. I, I don't know for certain, but let me speculate. And so if, if you're Harry Potter, then I'm Dumbledore. And I don't mind that. Compared, <laughs> I'll take that any day. <clears throat> so so I, I, what I suspect is happening is that the elevated glucose is a, attempting to force cells to metabolize a higher than normal rate of glucose mm. in, in, in an attempt to clear that. The body abhors elevated blood glucose. If, if blood glucose stays too high for too long, that is dangerous, um, resulting in, in excessive urine production and, you know, this kind of this polyuria. So the body and promoting in, in infections as well, because, of course, bacteria and viruses love yeah. glucose as a fuel. So the body abhors elevated glucose. What I suspect, I'll speculate, is that the, the body may be attempting to clear the glucose by accelerating glycolysis or the breakdown of glucose. And anytime you are accelerating chemical reactions, you are producing more heat. Every chemical reaction has heat production. That's why we have our body temperature. And so that might be contributing to the elevated body temperature, which is then um, disrupting sleep. Interesting. So just to summarize that, you've actually given us two profound takeaways on how insulin resistance may impact sleep, which is one, raising the core body temperature, and two, which is how fat can increase the size of the tongue, causing a higher risk for uh, sleep apnea, which is a very big deal in India, because I see more and more people talking about uh, using this uh, machine through the night for CPAP. sleep apnea and not really looking at addressing anything else. So they, they it's looked at a magical protocol, but uh, I think we can both agree that there's so much more to it than just using a, one machine. While it might be part of the picture, definitely there needs to be a digger de deeper digging right there and a lot more work done physiologically. So that was excellent. And um, now the other way around. So how do you connect uh, when poor sleep is ignored for a long time, how does it increase somebody's predisposition towards developing insulin resistance? Yes, yes. I, th I do think this is relevant and one of the main contributors to the diabetes and insulin resistance problem that is so profound in every country in the world. I typically will, just by way of background, I say that there are kind of three pillars to insulin resistance. Diet, which I do think is the biggest. Inflammation, which is not as big, but still relevant if the body is inflamed due to foods being eaten or due to other diseases, that can cause insulin resistance. And then stress. And when I say stress, I mean the stress hormones because that is what's causing, that's what's connecting stress to insulin resistance. It's hormones like cortisol and epinephrine. Now, in the case of sleep, disordered sleeping or sleep disruption, that is stress. That falls under that fine, that last category. And our culture, because of the way we live now with technology and, and constant lighting, artificial lighting and bright little screens <clears throat> and late eating into the night, um, culturally, we have set ourselves up for this for widespread disordered sleeping. And even one bad night, and this is a study I cite in the book, even one bad night of sleep will result in demonstrable insulin resistance the next day. Now, I wouldn't want for some sleep-deprived parent like me on occasion to hear this and be discouraged. No, because just get one good night and then you're back to normal. It's not like that's caused long-term insulin resistance. But in a person who has night after night of bad sleeping, now I do believe that has provided 
that will create a meaningful contribution to insulin resistance. And in that instance, even if someone's diet is reasonably good, the, the chronic disordered sleep will offset the benefits of the diet and the person will become increasingly insulin resistant. And this is, I, I, I mentioned it earlier, I'm convinced it's a combination of too much light in the evenings and then second, eating too late into the night. In fact, that last one for me is the strongest uh, predictor of whether I sleep well or not. If I can eat dinner with my family at around 6 p.m. and just stop and not have any more food after that, I will sleep so much better than if I start to snack around 8 or 9 p.m. when I'm going to bed typically around 10 p.m. I will sleep so much worse and, and I objectively know it because of the technology that I use to track my sleep. So avoiding light in the evenings and avoiding, for me especially, not snacking in the evening, that is one of the best ways to ensure sleep will be better. But I kind of stopped answering your question. If someone has a bad night of sleep, um, then the next day they will have higher than normal stress hormones, especially cortisol. Cortisol will be elevated when someone is in a sleep deprived state. And that is a key contributor to insulin resistance. Uh, cortisol, the stress hormone, causes insulin resistance. And we see the truth of this, not even in sleep deprivation. We see it beyond where if we give someone medications that are like cortisol, these things called cortisol mimetics, like dexamethasone or prednisone, these are drugs that we can give people to help control inflammation. But in the process... We will lower the inflammation, but these are molecules that act like cortisol. They cause, they directly cause insulin resistance throughout the body. And so cortisol is really the main connection, the main mediator connecting poor sleep with insulin resistance. I love it, Ben, because I've actually, after my son's condition, I've dedicated my work to looking at sleep from the lens of the adrenal function and cortisol. So I do put a lot of emphasis on what you're talking about. So that's great. And in fact, I eat my dinner at five in the evening and people look at me like that's just like a snack and there are people eating at midnight. And a lot of times, Ben, I get food logs from clients and the last thing at night is a piece of chocolate cake or mm -hmm. it's, um, it's um, uh, a fruit. So I say, no, no, no fruit last thing in the night because it's still sugar. Um, oh, yes. So yes. I, I think there's something so there's something so true about what you're saying. When someone starts craving a snack in the evening, they are never craving something good. They're exactly. never craving, they're never sitting there thinking, oh, I really would like some scrambled eggs or I really want a carrot exactly. or something. Yes, no, absolutely. it's always something, it's always something indulgent. That's just what our brain starts craving. For me, if I'm craving something in the evening, which is often, I just more often than not don't indulge it. It is that I want something salty and crunchy like chips or crackers or I want something sweet and gooey like ice cream or, you know, something more indulgent, more decadent. It's those are all going to be enriched with refined carbohydrates. People don't crave protein and fat in the evening. They crave something, you know, some refined carbohydrate and then with fat as well. That, that, that's a wicked combination, but it's very, very delicious. Yes, you're absolutely right, because I think there's a just deep physiology happening right there, because it's probably their blood sugar imbalance making them crave those foods as well. So perhaps the diet itself is very high in refined sugar and starches. So uh, Ben, what, where do we actually begin if you want to improve insulin resistance in terms of diet and habit? And I know you speak about eating your fruits and vegetables versus drinking them. And we are in a very big smoothie culture. And I know that India itself has suddenly become pulled into this smoothie culture and the fascination. And I always do try and say that 
uh, have it as fruit and vegetable rather than blending everything up. So I heard you talk about that. So let's just go through how does one begin when there's insulin resistance and probably poor sleep as well. How do they start? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so just briefly, because you mentioned um, drinking fruits and vegetables, I do consider that to be one of the greatest problems with the diet. And, and I say that partly also as a parent, where as a parent, we wonder constantly, how can I best nourish my children? We love them. We want to do what's best. But that doesn't, our, our desire to do what's best for our children doesn't always mean we do, because that we, we might we might be ignorant, um, which is forgivable. It is forgivable to be ignorant, but once we've learned, then it's less forgivable and we need to act according to the knowledge that we have. Often parents will want to give their children juice, fruit juice, because they will, they will know, well, if I give them soda pop, uh, that is obviously bad. So I won't give them soda pop. I'll give them juice. And that's healthy because it's made from fruit. And, and, and everyone knows this is really good. No, it's not. Uh, it, it is not. Uh, I would encourage anyone to look at the work of Robert Lustig, who is a pediatric endocrinologist, and his studies on in children just controlling their fruit juice consumption. It, it, and it yields tremendous benefits. So parents, <clears throat> do not give your children juice of any kind. For me, in my home, it is water or milk and whole milk at that. Now, that's an aside. What can someone do, although it's part of the solution, what can we do to improve insulin resistance? It does, the, the, the big uh, issue to address is the food that we eat. And I kind of have three simple rules. Um, control carbohydrates, and I'll elaborate a little bit. And control carbohydrates, prioritize protein, and fill with fat or don't fear fat. Now, with controlled carbohydrates, I simply mean focus on carbohydrates in their natural state as much as possible. So fruit and vegetable, eat them, don't drink them. And that is going to be a wonderful focus with carbohydrates that is sufficient. And then you, the more refined it is, the more careful you have to be. And, and the more starchy the grain is as well, the more careful we need to be. So someone would say, well, rice is perfectly benign because that's natural. Well, kind of, you know, we've gone one step beyond natural. Natural is just eating the, eating the carrot. And with the rice, we've harvested it. Now we've boiled it in water and now we are eating it. Um, I'm not saying we can't eat any of that. I'm just saying the grains are something we need to be careful with especially if someone has a tendency towards insulin resistance. So that's what I mean by control carbohydrates. Avoid processed starches and sugars. So be very careful with those. And then prioritize protein. That is one I think is very important and, and likely very relevant to the Indian culture and the dietary tendencies. The, the truth is animal proteins are vastly superior to any plant protein. And uh, this is demonstrably the case. Eggs, eggs um, and, and whey and meat are better than any of the plant proteins like soy or pea protein, etc. Now, I, I, so I just need to say that animal protein is superior. Uh, the, it is more available to the body. We have a better profile of amino acids. We can absorb it better. And it doesn't come with any unwanted stuff. By that, I mean, when we take a plant and we isolate the, the protein from the plant, we have to do a lot to do that uh, because plants are generally very poor protein sources. And so, for example, with soy or pea, we might want to get a serving of protein from soy or pea, and we have to take a thousand soybeans, you know, or a thousand peas and refine it in order to get the protein from that. The protein is what we want to get when we're concentrating the plant. What we don't want to get is things called anti-nutrients. And these plant proteins have them in, inside them. Uh, and this is, these are things like phytic acids or trypsin inhibitors or tannins. These are molecules that will physically inhibit the intestine's ability to digest the plant protein. So when we are trying to get all our protein from plants, 
we will be getting less than we think. Not only are the plants not as enriched with protein as the animal source proteins, but even still, we will have these anti-nutrients in the plant protein that will give us even less of the protein that we're attempting to get. So prioritize protein in and in as much as a person can focus on plant, uh, on animal proteins um, if it's possible. And if it's not possible, well then, well then it's harder. Um, and, and then maybe pea protein is probably the best. I am not an advocate of soy protein for other reasons, but I won't get into that. And then lastly, uh, fill with fat. Um, fat is the fundamental part of, of the diet. We need it. There are certain fats that we must eat, just like there are certain proteins that we must eat. Those are both very essential in the human diet. And when it comes to fats, my encouragement is to eat fats in the way that our ancestors have eaten them for millennia. And that is fats from animals. Um, we have always eaten animals um, and fats from fruit. And the, the fat, the fruit fats are coconuts, olives, avocados, I think palm as well, I, I think. But that is when we've gotten fat. Actually, palm might not be. But the first three I know, coconut, olives, avocado, that is when we get fat from the flesh of a fruit. We get the flesh of the coconut or the olive or the, or the um, other avocado. And we simply compress, we simply squish that flesh of that fruit. And now we have oil that is dripping out of it. That is not the same as the so-called vegetable oils, which are just seed oils. When you try to get oil from a seed, now you need a great degree of technology. You need high temperatures, high pressures, you need deodorants, you need solvents, you need all of these chemicals to do this. We are ill adapted to these fats because a hundred years ago, we didn't eat any of them. Now they have become the single most common source of fat. In the US where this has been documented and I bet it's similar in India, if, if, if not, even, not even more the case, soybean oil and margarine, this fake, I think, which is mostly cottonseed oil, this has become, they have become the two most common sources of fat in the, in the American diet. So the average American will get most of his or her fat from soybean oil than any other source. So when I talk about vegetable oils or seed oils, to be more accurate, people will say, well, I don't eat those. Yes, chances are you do. They are at least here. And again, I I suspect it's the same in India. They're the single most commonly consumed fat. If someone's eating packaged foods, almost always those foods will be enriched with some form of seed oil like soybean oil. So those are the worst kind of oils to eat for the re some of the reasons I mentioned earlier with regards to fat cells. And unfortunately, they are the fats that we eat the most of. So those are my three kind of pillars to fight insulin resistance, control carbohydrates, prioritize protein and fill with fat. Yeah, wonderful, Ben. In fact, I always advise people to stay with coconut oil, ghee, and olive oil. Uh, so Perfect. those are my three oils. <laughs> yeah, um, that was great. Actually, we got through so many things and I don't want to hold you up for much longer, but I do want to just get us through two last questions, which we have it as almost a mantra on our show. Uh, one is that there are about 100 million people today with diagnosed sleep disorders and probably a whole lot more just uh, ignoring daily sleep challenges. In your mind, what do you think is the biggest root cause of poor sleep? Mm, yeah, I, as I, I hinted at this earlier, but if, if, if these 100 million people are anything like me, I would think the most common cause of poor sleep will be bad eating habits. And in particular, eating the wrong foods too late in, in the day. That for me has, I've been, it's, it's objectively the case. I can quantify my sleep quality um, based on uh, whether I've eaten and see the differences, whether I've eaten late or not. So I suspect, and again, I'm projecting here, eating too late into the day is probably the biggest or one of the biggest causes. 
which is a big problem in india because a lot of times you see people that's the, actually the single meal where they are taking effort on so they're not taking effort for breakfast or because they are busy with work and then they come back and then sometimes it's very very late close to midnight which is alarming and i think that has a deep connection to even things like fatty liver you spoke yes. about fatty liver a while ago when we spoke about insulin resistance and i'm actually seeing almost every client of mine with fatty liver disease and i think that has so much to do with the sugar yeah elevated insulin will very much promote um liver to to start creating new fat and when you combine elevated insulin with elevated fructose consumption if the person's drinking soda pop or they're drinking fruit juice that fructose can only be metabolized in the liver and the liver will turn much of that fructose into fat so that's a double that's a double whammy those are that's a perfect storm valid point ben and in fact there's a lot of there's a specific diet which a lot of people follow where they only eat fruits all through the morning and don't eat anything till lunch and it's they say that you can eat an unlimited quantity of fruit and any fruit be it mangoes and um so i mean i've always had a little concern with that because it's a whole lot of fructose in the morning and you're setting yourself up for an entire day of blood sugar swing so very valid point um and one last thing ben we have this little mantra for a show if sleep is the new medicine then and i would love to have you complete that sentence for us if if sleep is the new medicine then take a hearty dose by keeping insulin in check there that's my that's my mantra that's how mm. i will finish it keep insulin in check and in so doing um glucose levels will stay in check body fatness will stay in check and and sleep will work allowing it to be the new medicine so if sleep is the new medicine then help it work by keeping insulin in check wonderful ben and just can you speak a little bit about your book and also where can people find you where can they order the book mhm mm yes thank you again deepa thanks so much for this what a fun conversation and i hope people have found it educational the book is called why we get sick and i don't know the availability in india uh, generally it's just available anywhere books are sold so amazon or big bookstores um are the most common places and i am fairly active on social media um not too active because i'm a busy professor and father so i don't get on too much but i am fairly active on instagram <laughs> mostly and you people can find me on social media by um searching for Ben Bickman PhD and usually this is simply me sharing insight into human metabolic function yes i do follow your instagram page ben and there's a lot of information on insulin resistance so i encourage all our listeners to go take a look and also to go get a copy of your book because i definitely think that there's a lot of people struggling with insulin resistance and that's probably the best place for them to start that was such a fun conversation i'm actually sad that it's the end of our episode but maybe we'll have you back someday Thank you Ben. Yes. Thank you my pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed the show. Just a reminder that this podcast is for information purposes only. This is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified health professional. This information is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you are looking for personal help 
on your health journey do seek out a medical practitioner please do make your own healthcare decisions based upon your research and in partnership with your doctor or otherwise qualified healthcare professional it is in no way intended as medical advice as a substitute for medical counseling or as treatment or cure for any particular health condition be sure to always work directly with a qualified health practitioner before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle that may feel out of your realm of comfort or understanding if you are looking for an allied functional medicine practitioner do seek out more information on www.phytothrive.com or www.sleepwhisperer.pro it is important that you have someone who's qualified and understands your health personally in order to provide adequate care especially when it comes to chronic health conditions. 